Daniel chapter 9, if you'll open your Bibles there. Mike, I think your daughter wanted to preach. That's kind of what I was hearing. I feel like that way sometimes myself, where I just, you know, want to get it out. So, all right. Daniel chapter 9. Now, by way of introduction to Daniel chapter 9, I'll tell you a story. 2000, the year 2000, my son Scotty was... Uh, cast in the feature film Aaron Brockovich, and uh, he got to work, uh, co-star, work alongside with Julia Roberts, actually played her son in the movie, which is kind of cool for a nine-year-old. And, uh, and so uh, being on the set for two months uh, really uh, got to know, uh, you know, uh, Julia's uh, niece, Emma, who she would bring to the set, and Scotty and her actually developed a friendship of sorts, and, um, and uh, so we, we kind of got uh, close with, with Emma and with her mom, Kelly, um, and um, Kelly being Julia's uh, 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 sister-in-law. And, um, and so shortly after the movie wrapped, they, uh, Kelly was having a, a party at her house. It was a, it was a baby shower, but she, she had invited everybody to come. So it was, you know, bring your husband, bring your kids. It was a, just a big party she was having at her house up uh, in the Hollywood Hills there. And so we were invited, and, um, and I, uh, I couldn't go. Um, I had plans with Mel Gibson that weekend, so I mean, you know, it just, I had something else to do. I had a better offer. I couldn't go for some reason, but Brenda went. She brought the kids, and, uh, and so, so they went there. Well, unbeknownst to us, they had invited um, a, um, a psychic to be there, and, uh, and this chick is there, and she's just doing her thing. You know, she's reading palms, and she's reading people's auras and all this stuff, and so Brenda walks in, and uh, my da- she's got my daughter, Caitlin, uh, who's like 13 at the time, and my daughter, Megan, and, and, and my son, Scott, in tow, and they come walking in, and, and Caitlin, my spiritually discerning, uh, you know, heretic calling out kind of gal, who tell you exactly what she thinks, she hits the door, and she's just like, she just hits the brakes right there at the door. She instantaneously knows this is some bad juju right here, man. There's some stuff going on. It is just ain't cool, you know? And, and um, so they go in, and Caitlin, uh, she's watching this lady like she's Satan herself, you know? And she's got her eye on this gal. And Satan turns, or okay, Satan, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Satan turns to her. No. So this gal's saying something about an aura, and Caitlin turns to Brenda, and she says, um, what's my aura? And uh, Brenda has this now priceless opportunity you know, to talk to my kids. And we, we strongly believe, as we were raising our kids, that, that we want to raise them to be not of this world, but to be in this world. And, and so, you know, a lot of times, um, and sometimes with good reasons, we retreat uh, from such things. But there are those times when, you know, God hasn't called us so much to isolate, but to infiltrate, to actually go in and to be salt and to be light. Not that you compromise and not that you embrace anything that's ungodly, but, you know, it's an awesome thing when Christians can go into very dark places and shine the light of Jesus Christ. And so being in there and, and being exposed to this, and Caitlin now asking this question, beautiful golden opportunity for Brenda to teach my kids uh, about the spiritual realm. Um, and uh, so Brenda's teaching them, hey, listen, the spiritual realm is very real. It is very deceptive. And when you open yourself up to it, it's very dangerous. First John uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
And so Brenda there talking to the kids about the dangers and the deception of opening yourself up to the demonic supernatural realm. Well, Daniel, on the other hand, was a man who was open to supernatural things. Unlike this woman who aligned herself with the supernatural demonic realm, however, Daniel aligned himself with God and with his word. And and the result was that Daniel was a man who was very much in tune with God. And he was very much in tune with the supernatural. See, because God is supernatural. And and the fact of the matter is, is that God operates oftentimes in, in supernatural ways. The Bible says that the natural man can't understand the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. And to the natural man, the the things of the spirit, the supernatural realm of God seems foolishness to man, which is crazy when you think about it, because here you have people who hook, line, and sinker will embrace the notion of somebody, you know, reading your palm or reading your aura, whatever that is, and, and, and all, and people will swallow that. But the supernatural things of God seem foolishness to them. And indeed, it is foolishness to them because the Bible says it's spiritually discerned. You have to have the Holy Spirit abiding within you to to lead you uh, into the supernatural realm. Uh, And so Daniel was very much in tune with God. And, um, and, And so, you know, being a man who discerns the supernatural as God reveals it to him. Now... We saw how Daniel did this, that he, he was a guy that was in the word, and he was a guy that weighed and tested everything with the word of God. And we had an experience this week, it was kind of not unlike that, in the sense that well, one of our members came to see me, and he had had a vision. Uh, he was, you know, wasn't asleep, it wasn't a dream, he was wide awake, all of a sudden he had this vision, and, and in his vision, basically his vision was that he came into a lot of money. Um, and, and cool vision to have, right? I have those all the time. It's usually when it's lottos at, you know, $500 million jackpot and you're, you know, have all kinds of visions about what, how you'd spend it. That wasn't his vision. He had this supernatural vision that he had come into this, this great deal of money um, and, um, and then, you know, came to realize in the vision that he got the money by way of inheritance because his father had died. Well, his father is very much alive. And so the, the vision kind of unsettled him somewhat, and, uh, and so he came to talk to me about it, and, and he's, he's like, you're going to think I'm crazy, I'm going to tell you this. I'm like, I, I don't think you're crazy, and, uh, you know, let's talk about this. Because, you know, here's a guy who, who's seeking the Lord, loves the Lord, moved his whole family across country to go to, go to Bible college. He's, he's studying the Bible every single day. He's serving the Lord every single day. He's given his life over to prayer. He's open to the supernatural in, in a godly sense. Uh, and, and he's seeking the Lord. So very much he should expect that God supernaturally is going to reveal himself to him. And so here this is happening. He's sharing with me. Well, God, in the course of our meeting, reveals to him the interpretation of this vision. That, listen, there's this, there's this great juxtaposition in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that you've got, uh, on the one hand, this, this huge earthly reward. Uh, this, this, this juxtaposition in the sense that you've got this, this huge earthly inheritance that, that, that you're going to be coming into. But then what, what you're troubled by, and this is the, the, the part that he's sharing is, as he was talking about this, his, his dad doesn't know the Lord. And so he's unsettled by, and, and, and it's like, look, what you need to see is that God's giving you this, this, this great, greatly diverse vision. 
On the one hand, you've got this huge earthly inheritance that you're going to be coming into as a result of, of your dad's life and all and, and his you know, working and the things that he's amassed and you're going to be benefiting from that. But not only is he not going to be benefiting from that in the sense that, you know, he's going to die and leave all that behind. You know, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, you know, kind of thing. But, but also, you know, you're troubled. You're, you're not encouraged at all about the money. That that's not the part. That's not, you know, it doesn't, it's inconsequential. You're worried about your dad dying and go to hell. So the issue here is you're talking about your dad's inheritance. You've got, you've got an inheritance. Your dad, spiritually speaking, doesn't have an inheritance. And that's the issue here. And so, so what's happening, God revealing, is, listen, you need to go reach out to your father. So to make a, a long story short, too late, um, he goes and he reaches out to his dad. His dad last week gives his heart to Christ and makes a profession of faith. Yeah. And... Um, well, and not only that, but the next day his mom calls him. She gives her life to Jesus Christ. She gets saved. And his mom, you know, she's, she's telling everybody. And now his aunt wants to talk to him and have him pray with his aunt. Just the cool, awesome, moving work of the Spirit in a very supernatural way. Well, I, I tell you this, this illustration or this story by, by way of, of introduction to the second part of Daniel chapter 9. Because, well, where we're here in, in Daniel chapter 9 is, is this idea that, you know what, God has this, this moving work to do as well. See, Daniel operating in the supernatural, he's receptive and he's responsive to God through his word. This is what we looked at last week. And, and what we saw by way of how Daniel lived his life, even though the scripture wasn't written yet, Daniel certainly understood the truth of it and believed the truth of it, which was 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This having not yet been uh, revealed uh, to Paul supernaturally for Timothy, but it's God's eternal will or word existing in the heavenly, and, and Daniel understanding the truth of it, listen, God's word is, is it's profitable, and, and it's to be followed. So because of that, Daniel was a man that God could trust to reveal his plans to him, because he's open to the supernatural moving work of God. And that's what we're going to look at today, is God revealing his plans to a man who's open and receptive <coughs> to God and to his supernatural working. So, as we come to Daniel chapter 9, with that in mind, God's going to be revealing his plans to Daniel for the nation of Israel and for all of mankind. And we're going to see here how his plans are coming to pass in our world today. And God here, having revealed his plans to Daniel, now we are going to benefit from that. We're going to see God's plans uh, unveiled for us as well. So Daniel chapter 9, we'll pick it up where we left off last week, uh, verse 23. Um, Daniel, having been reading God's word, and and God having, you know, been revealing himself to, uh, to, to Daniel through his word, moved Daniel to go into an intense time of prayer with God, and God, in response to his prayer, sent the, the angel Gabriel to him. Gabriel's in the, in the course of talking to Daniel here as we pick it up in verse 23, uh, and, and continuing Gabriel's method, or words to Daniel says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. 
And I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. In other words, hey, I've come to talk to you and I've come to reveal God's plans to you, so listen up. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be um, built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until uh, the consummation which is uh, determined is poured out on the desolate. What? Let's get into it. First thing I'd have you write down is that God's word is predictive. God's word is predictive. Now, here's, here, here's the deal. When, you, when you're there in verse 24, he says 70 weeks are determined. Now, that word weeks in the Hebrew, it simply means a unit of seven. And here's what you need to understand. That the, the Jews had what was called sabbatic years. And so what would happen is their years were divided into weeks of years. And that's the idea here is that each week is comprised of a week of years. So the idea being there are 70 weeks of years that are determined. That's the length of time. That's, that's what's being said there in verse 24. Um, 70 weeks of years. Um, and so um, what purpose are they determined for? 70 weeks of years. Well, he goes on to say in verse 24 what they're determined for. He says uh, they're determined, first of all, for your people and your holy city. Now, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to, to Daniel. And Daniel is a Jew. And so what he's talking about when he says you're, they're de- determined for your people and your holy city, he's talking about the Jews and he's talking about Jerusalem. There are 70 weeks uh, of weeks that are determined for you um, and, or rather, 70 weeks of years that are determined for your people and for your holy city. To, to, for what purpose? To finish transgression. In other words, there's, that you've been rebellious. You've rebelled against God. We need to put an end to that. And so this is, this is the time that we've established that it's going to put an end to your rebellion. And, and, to, and uh, to, to, he says, to make an end of sins. The word sin means to miss the mark. God's mark is perfection. He says, we're going to do away with, it, with you missing it kind of thing. We're going, to, we're going to have you not sin anymore. To make reconciliation for iniquity. In other words, to fix all the destruction that your sins have brought. Um, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, to seal up vision and prophecy. And, and to uh, anoint the most holy. Now, let me ask you a question. What is necessary for all of those things to take place. Who's the only one that can do that? 
It's Jesus Christ, right? And that's the key to this whole thing. The key to everything in your Bible is Jesus. Uh, and, and we're going to come back to that. But Jesus is the key to that. So what he says there in verse 24 is, listen, 70 weeks are determined. If you want to circle that word determined, it's, it's, it's important. You could nearby, maybe you could write this, decreed, settled, or marked out. 70 weeks are determined. They're decreed, they're settled, they're marked out. In other words, this is inked. You know, there are those things in your calendar. Sometimes you write them in pencil, and there's other things you write in ink in your calendar. You know, you get, you get some random obscure wedding invitation from some vague acquaintance that you knew years ago. That thing, maybe you write in pencil in your calendar. But you now are having a wedding of your daughter, and you're going to be walking her down the aisle. That, that puppy's inked in your calendar. Right? And so this, this is the idea here. Listen, this thing, it's settled, it's marked out, it's determined. This thing is inked. I used to work with a guy years ago. I worked 72-hour shifts. And uh, I worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I was off Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. You go, that's a sweet gig. Yeah, but I worked 72 hours. It was, you know, okay, who am I kidding? They didn't pay me for what I did. They paid me for what I was willing to do. I had a pretty sweet shift. But I had a guy who would relieve me on Saturdays, and he was a flake, and he would call in sick a lot of times. And because I was in the fire department, I couldn't just tell, you know, the station captain, good luck with that, I hope you find somebody, I'll see you later. No, because the station captain would just look at me and say, you're a civil servant, guess, guess who's working today? You, you know. And so it was, knock, knock, who's there? You. Okay, so that was it. You were forced on duty. And so... Um, and so that was, that was the drill. So it was hard for me to have things inked in my calendar for Saturday. In fact, if I needed to have something inked in my calendar for Saturday, I would have to, ahead of time, talk to somebody and find them and say, hey, would you trade shifts with me on Friday so that when Saturday rolled around and, and Joe Flake called in sick, that they, he would get tagged, you know, and this guy's reputation was so notorious that guys started to refuse to trade Fridays with me because they knew that he was going to, you know, call in. So I had, I was limited to the guys that had their shit, their normal shifts start on Saturday um, because they're working already. So, I mean, what's, you're forced on. Well, guess what? I'm here anyway. So that, you know, that worked out. But at any rate, um, the, you know, for me to ink that was kind of working, you know, and I had to sort of manipulate things. For God, God inks things because he's God right? And he can just say, look, here's how it's going to go down. As a matter of fact, Isaiah the prophet said, said that speaking, uh, you know, prophetically for God. He said, I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do, I will do all that I please. This is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. And so the, the fact of the matter is, is that God inks the things. He determines what's going to transpire. And so what's, what God is saying here to Daniel is, listen, I've determined that there will be 70 weeks of years marked out for Israel for them to receive their Messiah and to be made right with God. Take it to the bank. This is what I've determined. This will happen. And, and the, the purpose is there. Hey, I want to put an end to rebellion and sin. I want to reconcile their iniquities. And I want to bring in righteousness that will last forever. Here's the point. God's word is predictive. Uh, God decrees it. He settles it. It's a done deal. Take it to the bank. Um, It's not subject to change. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
It's not like God's going to write something down in ink and then all of a sudden something's going to happen in the future and he's going to go, well, I hadn't considered that. I guess i got to reschedule. He doesn't reschedule. That's the point. And, and, and here's a point of application for us just here before we continue in the context of the nation of Israel and what this means and what God's doing. The, the, the point of application for us at this point is, is that, listen, God's word is predictive in our life. And, and the idea is that, well, it's practically predictive. And, and that doesn't mean that it's almost, practically almost. It means it's practically in a very real everyday sense. When we study God's word, we need to understand it's predictive in our life in the sense it, 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 it's, it's prescriptive in our life, if, if, if you want to say it that way. And there's a lot of examples. I'll give you two. If you, if you consider, for instance, Galatians 6, 7. It says, God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. The idea is, look, this is inked. It's settled. It's done. There's nothing you can do to change this. It is, it is, it is there. And so the, the thing is, is that Satan will work on our hearts and he'll deceive us. And there's this part of our lives where when God's word is predictive and when the very idea is that God knows what he's talking about and the, and the thing is written in ink and you can't change it, Satan, Satan whispers in our heart and basically says, uh, you know, this whole reaping what you sow thing, you can get away with this one. And really, when we fall into sin, knowing good and well that it's wrong, knowing good and well that God says you will reap what you sow, but when you do it anyway, what you're doing in your mind is you're thinking, hey, this thing is actually written in pencil when God's written it in ink. The idea is, you know what, maybe, maybe it's solid, maybe it's firm, maybe I should obey it, maybe I can fudge on this one just a little bit. And so what we need to do is remember, no, 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 listen, God, his word is predictive because he exists outside of time and he calls the balls and strikes before the pitch has ever been thrown because he knows if it's going to be a ball or a strike. That's the thing. And we lose sight of that. And you say that out loud and you go, duh, come on. That's not really that deep. I mean, I get that. Yeah, but we don't because that, that thing subtly happens in our heart. We don't really, truly believe it. Let me give you another example. In James chapter 4, listen to what he says. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. Again, this is predictive in our life. If you think about in Luke chapter 12, there's a, there's a parable that Jesus talks about there. And he talks about this rich man. And this guy, you know, he, he's, he's got all the money and all the possessions. And he's got so much that his barns won't hold everything. And so he, he says, you know what? I, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can amass more stuff. And, and then basically he says, when, when I'm done doing this, I'm going to kick back and take it easy. And I'm going to say to myself, Dude, you're, you're set for the future. I'm paraphrasing. Dude, you're set for the future. Everything's cool. You know, you've got, you've got your future all planned out, all mapped out. You're, you've got all the contingencies, all the angles figured out, and you can just kick back and relax. And the implication there, the way Jesus tells this story, is that this guy has basically put himself in the position of God in his life where he's saying, 
I am going to, to be in control of my own destiny, and I'm going to take care of all the contingencies. And what's he doing? Well, he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own provisions. He's not mindful of the fact that his life truly is a vapor. And so what does Jesus say in this parable? He says to him, fool, this very life, your life, or this very night, your life is going to be required of you. This very night. And then who's all, your, all the goods and possessions that you have? Who, who are they going to belong to then? You can't trust in your stuff. You have to trust in God. And the big idea of that parable is, look, where, where, are, you going to tre- where are you going to store your treasure? Are you, are you placing your treasure and your hope in God in heaven? Or are you placing your treasure and your hope in you here on earth and in your stuff? That's the big idea. And these are areas where we lose sight of the fact that God's word is very predictive. He knows exactly what's coming, and, and we do well to listen to him and to heed him. And it's not just that God's word is predictive. It's the preciseness of it. And that's the second point, if you'll write it down, that God's word, not only is it predictive, it's precise. And that's what this section of scripture teaches us, is just how precise God is. Again, look at verse 25. He says there in verse 25 that there are seven weeks of years until the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that are coming. And then he says that after that, there's 62 weeks of years when Messiah is going to come. And the the fact of the matter is, is that, again, when, when God, through the angel Gabriel, gave this vision and these words to Daniel the prophet, none of these things had yet transpired. Now we can look from the benefit of, of history and we can look in the rearview mirror of history and we can see how seven, the seven weeks of years that were commanded to, re- to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we can see that this was precisely what happened. When we can see that 62 weeks of years later that Messiah would come, we look in the rearview mirror of history and we can say this is precisely what happened. And as you continue into verse 26, what you see there is that God says that Messiah will be cut off. If you'll notice, he says, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The, the, the word there, cut off, it's, it, it's a word that, that basically it means um, really an execution. That's, what it, that's kind of what it's talking about. And, and so the Messiah is going to be executed, but not for himself. Who, who was Jesus crucified for? For you and me, he took the sins of mankind to the cross. Not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who's the prince that is to come? Is speaking of Antichrist. And the people of Antichrist, well, remember, if, we, if you'll recall, when we went through Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7 and the visions that the Lord gave King Nebuchadnezzar and the visions that the Lord gave to Daniel himself and, and how those all went. And basically what we saw is that these world-ruling kingdoms are going to come and ultimately what's going to happen is that there will be a reviving of, that, of the, the, the fourth ruling empire, which is the empire of Rome, and this is going to be headed up by Antichrist. Antichrist. So when it speaks of the people uh, of, of, the, of he who is to come, the, the um, uh, find it here, um, he says, after 62 weeks, the people cut off, but not for himself, but for the people of the prince who is to come. So when he speaks of the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is Antichrist, the people of Antichrist, well, this is speaking of Rome. And, and again, this is exactly what happened. 
See, um, there was, in, in the years immediately following Christ's uh, crucifixion, the, there, there was this, this the, the, the people of the prince who is to come, the, the, the Romans came in and they did all of these destructive things. He says, hey, they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. This happened in 70 A.D. And so the fact of the matter is, is that there are these very precise things that happen in accordance with God's word. Not only is it predictive, but it's very precise. And the, and the application for us, and again, we're going we're gonna to take a deeper step here in a minute about the implications and the application for the, for the, for the Jews uh, and, and, and all. But, but for us, just right now, when you talk about the preciseness of God's word, it is very precise in our life right now. I'll give you a couple examples in this. When I'm, when I'm teaching from God's word, I'll have people that will come to me after a message, and they, I mean, they're pale, and they'll say, that was just for me. You have no idea what I'm going through, and you just spoke right to me. Every, you know, I, recently, you know, somebody told me, uh, they were listening to somebody preach a message, and they, they said, this guy told me my entire life for the past two years. He had no way of knowing it, and this guy just doing it. Now, that is a, a preciseness that only God can do, right? The way he moves and the way he speaks. I've had people who have gotten angry with me and accused me of being in cahoots with, you know, their spouse because I said something from the pulpit, and they're like, well, what are you doing? They talked to you, and they got upset. I got a good friend of mine who's a pastor today, but years and years ago, he was going through a divorce with his wife. They were, they were just, you know, brutal divorce, and the judge ordered <laughs> that he should go to her church because her kids were there, and the judge ordered him to go to church. You want to talk about God, you know, just working. So the guy, he was, he's unsaved at that point. He'd never set foot in a church. He, had no, he did not want to go. And so what he did was he said, I, I was out at the river partying all weekend, and I, I drove all night to get to the church on Sunday morning. He says, I, I took a bunch of pills. I smoked a joint out in the church parking lot. I finished my last beer. And then he said, I went in there. And the guy was teaching out of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He lost his lid. He storms out in the middle of the service. He's yelling at the usher on the way out. My wife set me up. She talked to the pastor and all of this stuff. The guy goes, did we just teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse? Come back next week. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. He came back next week there in Ephesians chapter 6. He got saved the very next week. See, God's word is precise. It's very precise. And, and, you know, we have those instances where, where God moves and where God works. I remember years ago, I had a young mom. Her name was Jackie. She was a member of our church, and, and she had just been diagnosed with a, with a fatal form of cancer. And she, she didn't know she had the cancer. And not only did, you know, it, so it was, you have cancer, here's your diagnosis, and by the way, you've got less than two months to live. And as she's sitting there talking to me, and this poor thing is because of the nature of the cancer and all, she had this horrible jaundice. She was, she had her skin just, just glowing yellow from, from the, the jaundice condition that she was in. And the fear in her eyes. And the thing was is that she had these two very young children. Her name was Jackie, and Jackie's only concern was her little baby. She, she, she didn't care so much that she was dying. She was just gripped in fear because she was leaving her daughters behind. And in that moment, the Lord just directed me to share with her from Romans chapter 8. 
And I read her these verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in sharing those verses with her, I just basically said, listen, Jackie, the Lord loves you and he loves your children more than you could ever love them. And this is God's word to you because right now, the only thing you care about is that you're leaving your babies. And she hadn't said that to me, I just knew. And, and, and I said, this is God's word to you that you can trust your, your children to the Lord. Now, there's nothing that a man can do when a mom has just gotten diagnosed with fatal cancer and that she's going to leave her babies in two months. There's nothing that a man can say that's going to make that right. But God's word is precise. And this was God's word to her heart. And she had a peace that would surpass all understanding at that moment. She, she just had God meet her in a precise in a very specific way. Hey, God wants to meet you in a very precise way today through his word. He wants to speak to you. And the fact of the matter is, is that through his word, God does speak to us in those very precise ways. And those are the, the precision of God when he speaks to us in, in those precise ways. It brings that peace that only his word can bring. And it brings that hope and that encouragement and that strength. And, and hey, here's what I want to add to that, and it's my third point, and I'm going to just blend it together, which is God's word is proven. It's not, it's not just predictive, and, and it's not just precise, but it's proven. And, and, and since God word, God's word is proven, then, then what that can do is it can strengthen us for, for the things that we have yet to face. See, because here's what I want you to see. This, is, this blows my mind. And by the way, just before I get into this, just put pause, just for, hit the pause button real quick. Have you, as a believer, as a follower of God, has there ever been a point in your life where you look at the Bible or you look at your faith and you have that thing that says, is this real? You ever gone, th- am I the only one that's ever thought that? You ever gone through that? Come on, we've all been there. You've been at the place where from time to time you say, is this just a bunch of fairy tales? Is this really real? And the Bible says to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the, the fact is, ultimately, we're going to find out that God is, is, is real and that his word is true when we just follow him by faith and we trust him and we take his word in and we live it out and God reveals to us practically day by day that it is the truth. That he is God, that he is working within us. But the thing is, and what I'm going to show you right now in terms of the, is the fact that God's word is proven, I'm going to show you something mathematically that, that will blow your mind. And this right here settles it once and for all. Hey, this is absolutely true. Now, that's a, that's a bold statement. God's word is proven. Look at verse 25. What he says in verse 25 is, he says, No, therefore, circle that word no. Nearby it, write something that basically says, I can know, you. I can know, right? And, and here's the thing. He says, know therefore, know this, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 
The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, you can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2, because again, we look at this with the benefit of hindsight from history. This written before the events took place. We look at it from from the rearview mirror of history, and we see that this happened on March 14th, 445 B.C. This command to go and, and rebuild the, the, the walls and the streets and, the, and the, the houses of Jerusalem. It was a command given by Artaxerxes uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2. So we absolutely know that that's the trigger. That's the starting point. He says from the command that it goes out, that's when you go, bink, the clock just started. It was March 14th, 445 B.C. So it's a, it, it's a matter of recorded history in Scripture and elsewhere. And, and so just as Daniel was instructed here, it happened during troublesome times. Again, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, what you see there is that they went, Nehemiah and the others went to rebuild the wall, went to, to, to be a part of that rebuilding process of the rubble, and that they built with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, that, that their enemies opposed them. And, and, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah, and you read all about it, and you're like, yep, it was built during troublesome times. Again, nailed it. And then he says, until the prince, in other words, the coming of Jesus Christ, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In in other words, a total of 69 weeks of years, which is divided into two parts. And I'm going to put this on the screen for you so you can take notes. The 69 weeks of years prophesied divided into two parts. First of all, you have seven weeks of years, which is 49 years until the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem. And then you have 62 weeks of years after that, which is 434 years until the coming of Messiah. So altogether, the prophecy was that there would be a total of 483 years until Messiah came. Now, the Babylonian calendar was only 360 days. So if you take 483 years and multiply that by 360 days, what you come up with is 173,880 days. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, so if the clock started ticking on March 14th, 445 B.C., which it did because that's when the command went out, what was the day that God was saying Messiah would come. Well, I'll do the math for you because it was done for me. It's April 6th, 32 AD. And you're like, well, how can you know that? Well, if turn to Luke chapter 19, by the way, while I tell you this, Luke 19. But I'll tell you how we know this is because if, if you look in Luke chapter 3 in verse 1, um, the date is, we have some timing cues that are built in there. And then the other timing cue is that we know that Jesus celebrated four Passovers while he was here on the earth. And and we can trace back, based on the lunar calendar, when those Passovers were. And so based on these timing cues and all, we can pinpoint to to the day when the Messiah came. So Luke chapter 19, verse 29 is where we're going to pick it up. And... It came to pass on April 6th, 32 AD, I will tell you, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he, that is Jesus, sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where uh, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples, not just the 12, but the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now what they're proclaiming here, they're proclaiming and they're quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. Which, which refers to the coming of the Messiah for the Jews. Here's, here's a portion of that psalm. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what they're proclaiming here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a, it's a, messianic, uh, it's a messianic psalm. They're quoting it. And, and you can always tell when something significant is happening in relation to Old Testament and Old Testament prophecies because the Pharisees kind of come to, to our, our aid there because they pitch a fit about it. And that's what happens in the very next verse, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him, to Jesus, from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Well, because they're calling him God. That's what they're, they're calling him the Messiah. These Pharisees recognized it for what it was. They're like, rebuke your disciples. But, verse 40, he, Jesus, answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Wouldn't that be the coolest thing if they had kept silent just for a minute? Hey, wait, watch this. Just listen, you know, having the stones cry out. Now, Think about this. Up until this point, every single time Jesus received praise, he shut it down, didn't he? He always shut it down. He'd heal somebody, and what would he say? He'd say, don't tell them I healed you. Don't tell anybody who did it. Go away, go show yourself to the priest kind of thing. And so often people are like, ah, Jesus healed me. You know, they didn't listen to him. But why did Jesus shut it down? Well, because his time hadn't come yet. In fact, that's what he said to his mom. The very first miracle he ever did at the wedding feast of Cana, he, he turned the water into wine. And, and, you know, before he did that, though, when his mom said, hey, you know, come work your magic over here kind of thing, son. He's like, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, what's he referring to? Was he referring to the cross? Yeah, maybe. Is he referring to his triumphal entry? Yeah, Probably. See, my time hasn't come yet. My hour hasn't come. My, and, and so the thing is, is that as he's, as he's coming in here, they're saying, hey, shut this down. The Pharisees are saying, stop him. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to stop him. Not only didn't he stop him, he engineered the whole thing. He told him to go get the colt and to, and to set it all up. He received all of this worship. 
Why? Because this is the day the Lord has made. See, we say that sometimes. I'll do a wedding and I'll pray. You know, Lord, what a beautiful, this is the day you've made. It's beautiful and we're thankful for this man, this woman, whatever. But in the context of this psalm, this is the day the Lord has made. What is that day? It's the day that Jesus Messiah comes. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. Listen, the very day that, that God told Daniel that the Messiah was going to come, that's the very day he came. Who could engineer such things? God. That's the only answer there. So this is the day the Lord has made. It's 173,880 days from the commandment of Artaxerxes, say that three times, Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It's right on schedule. Jesus comes on the Mount of Olives. He looks at the city of Jerusalem and he begins to weep. Verse 41 in Luke 19. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep over it? Because they're going to reject him. Verse 42, saying, <clears throat> if you had known, even you, especially in this, what's he say? Your day, underline it. This is the day the Lord has made. This day, 173,880 days from when he said it was going to come. This, your day, the things that make for your peace. What makes for their peace? Receiving their Messiah by faith. Surrendering their lives to him but they would reject him. And so he said, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Verse 48, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Roman legions, they surrounded the, the, the city of Jerusalem. Titus, who was leading the charge, basically said, don't burn the, the, the sanctuary because everything inside it's covered with gold and I want the gold. And one of the soldiers tossed a, a, a torch into the sanctuary. The thing burned, all the gold melted down in between all the stones. And so Titus said, man, I wish you hadn't do that. Break it apart, get all the gold. And so they, stone by stone, dismantled the, the, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, so that they could get the gold just exactly like God said it was going to be. And so Jesus is weeping over this city, man, because they're going to reject him. Turn back to Daniel 9, verse 26. After the 62 weeks... When Messiah comes, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. He's going to be rejected. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified. Who was he crucified for? For, Not for himself. For you and me. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He suffered and died paying the penalty on the cross for your sins in your place. So the Messiah shall be cut off, not for himself. He didn't receive the kingdom for himself then. And the people of the prince who is to come, the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And they did it. And the end of it shall be with a flood. That doesn't mean with a literal flood. It means that this, this enemy force is going to flood in, speaking metaphorically, and that's exactly what happened. 
until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then, verse 27, now, there, now there's a, in your Bible, between verse 26 and 27, there's a, there's, there's a little white space there, uh, and it's more than just a line between verses. What happens there in that space is a parenthesis of time. This is the church age in that. This is when God's prophetic clock gets put on pause. I'm going to come back to that. We're going to finish there. Just know that. But we move on, verse 27, he says, then he, who's he? speaks of Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's one week of years. That's a seven-year period of time. But in the middle of that week, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out upon the desolate. Now, this is talking about the tribulation period. And so what happens there in verse 27, it's saying, here's what's going to happen with the nation of Israel and with everyone who dwells on the face of the earth during the tribulation period. And, and we're gonna, I'm, not, I'm not gonna get into that uh, here. You can put a little to be continued kind of note in your head there because when we get to chapter 12, we're gonna talk about this. And so we'll come back to that. We'll look at that more clearly. But what I wanna do is focus on that little white blank between verse 26 and verse 27, this parenthesis of time. This is the important time to talk to you about. That 70 week, 70th week of Daniel, that's going to be during the tribulation period. It's kind of like a chess clock. You know, you've got two different sides. And when the one player goes, you start the timer. When another player goes, that timer starts and this one starts. That one stops and this one starts. That's kind of the thing here is that we are in this parenthesis of time. And for the nation of Israel, they've been through the 69 weeks. Their 70th week is coming. They're on pause. Why? Because right now, God, in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he's offering to you and to me the opportunity to come know him. This parenthesis of time is is the time of the Gentiles. It's the time when God's grace is, is freely given, freely offered to all who will come to him. You're living in an age of grace right now. And, and what, what, what I want to implore you in, and I just, I'm just going to close on this, and I want to just focus on this. This is all true. It's proven mathematically. It's a matter of documented history. And so what that should do is cause you to say, holy smokes, this is real. And for all of us, we have those sections in our lives, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we don't always live like this is real. We pay it lip service like it's real, but we live like it's penciled out, like it isn't inked. And what I want you to know is that God's grace is for this limited period of time. And I want to make two pleas this morning as we close. The one is for those of you who are here who've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And what I want to say to you is that I just proved to you in black and white, mathematically, that God is who he says he is. That he said, this is when I'm coming and this is when he came. That he was rejected by men. Don't reject him today. I want you to come away from the place where you say he's real. And there's a lot I don't know, but what I do know is that when the Bible says that you're a sinner, that deep down inside you know it because God's written his law on the tablet of your heart. That's how you know right from wrong. 
And if there is a God and if you do reject him, there's no hope left for you. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that you believe, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God, he died on the cross for my sins in my place, and I believe that, and I want to just cry out to God and say, save me, have mercy on me. Then that would be my, my great hope for you today. And that you would just come to the end of yourself today and say, okay, I surrender. The second thing that I hope happens today is for the majority of you who are believers who have those areas in your life where you live like it's in pencil and not in black and white. And I want to I implore you to knock it off. Because God is who he says and he says what he means and he will have his way. And so for, for you who are here, and I just trust the Lord speaking to you right now. There are areas in your life where you've been disobedient. There's areas of your life you just sort of winked at. You just sort of sweep under the rug. Hope God doesn't come back to that thing. Hey, no. God's coming back to that thing now. He wants you to deal with it. So I pray you will. Live in a season of grace. Prevail upon his grace today.